Today's reading is Galatians 2:11 through 21. It can be found on page 1075 of the Bible's next to your seats as well as on the screen. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. The word of the Lord. pulpit before. Uh, Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, for this Sunday, this day of rest that we get to come together as a community, as friends, as neighbors, as family, to worship you, to hear from your word, and to remember your message of grace to us. Amen. Once there was a man who was walking across a bridge, and as he was going across, he saw another man about to jump. And so he ran up to him and he said, stop, don't do it. And uh, the second man said to him, well, why not? The first man said, well, there's so much to live for. I mean, do you believe in God? The second man said, yeah, I I do. Me too, said the first man. Are are you Catholic or are you Protestant? Well, I'm, I'm Protestant, said the second man. Me too. Are you, uh, are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Said the first man. Well, I'm, I'm Baptist, said the second man. Me too, said the first man. Are you, uh, are you Baptist Church of God or are you Baptist Church of the Lord? Well, uh, I'm Baptist Church of God, said the second man. Wow, me too, said the first man. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? And the second man said, well, I'm reformed Baptist Church of God. Wow, me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879? Or are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? Well, I'm Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915, said the second man. The first man paused, looked at him, and said, Die, heretic, 
as he pushed him off the edge. This is an interaction that you might see in a place called Jesus Land. Jesus Land is, is, is David Zoll, the author of Seculosity. It's his not-so-flattering catch-all phrase for what he calls the bastardized form of Protestant Christianity that dominates much of the spiritual landscape of North America, where it's more about being right, getting the right things, than it is about actual Christianity. It's more about Jesus' land than it is about Jesus himself. It's this type of pseudo-Christianity where the main thing is just to get things right. And uh, a lot of us, uh, when we want to look at how uh, the, the journey into this Jesus' land goes about, as David Zoll calls it, we look and we see that it begins when we develop this idea of what a good Christian ought to be, and then we use this idea that we create to measure ourselves and to measure others. I'll say that again. The journey into Jesus' land begins when we develop this idea of what the right kind of Christian ought to be, and then we use this idea to measure ourselves and then to measure others. And I think if you've been around the church long enough, you might already have an idea of what you think the right kind of Christian ought to be. It sort of can develop subconsciously. Uh, even, even atheists have an idea of what they think the right kind of Christian ought to be. I think a lot of us can create this image. Uh, Christina Cleveland, she's an author, an activist. She's a social psychologist from the Minneapolis area. She had a very, very specific definition of what the right kind of Christian was and what the wrong kind of Christian was. And she wrote about it like this. For her, the right kind of Christian was someone who drives a hybrid vehicle to shop at the local farmer's market. Uh, the right kind of Christian was somebody who hopped on the poverty bandwagon, the social justice bandwagon, the environmental bandwagon. Whatever uh, bandwagon there was, the right kind of Christian was somebody who got behind those causes. For her, the right kind of Christian uh, was somebody who wasn't bound by a political party, but always voted Democrat anyway. <laughs> For her, the right kind of Christian read a lot and wrote a lot too, probably on like a personal blog or something like that. You know, in other words, the right kind of Christians were the people who were just like her. And don't even get her started on the wrong kinds of Christians. The wrong kinds of Christians are the people that haven't even read a book in the last two years. And they probably have the limited vocabulary to prove it. The wrong kind of Christian drives a gas-guzzling SUV and somehow manages to avoid spending quality time with anybody outside of their own race and culture. The wrong kind of Christian, she says this is the icing on the cake. The wrong kind of Christian probably plays ultimate frisbee or some other kind of inane sport in her, in her words. In other words, the wrong kind of Christians are the people who are not like her. Now, she says this half-jokingly, you know, about what the right kind of Christian and the wrong kind of Christian are, but that still leaves the question, what is the right kind of Christian? What's the right way to be a Jesus follower? And this was the biggest question, the defining question for the church at Antioch, uh, which is sort of where the, the scenario that we read about in the passage today happened. Uh, Antioch, just for a little reference, it was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was pretty big. It was like the Chicago of the Roman Empire. Uh, and Peter, uh, Jesus' right-hand man, one of his followers, was overseeing the community there. In the passage it says, uh, Paul calls out Cephas. Cephas is Peter. So Peter's looking over the church community there, and, and things are going pretty well. 
You know, Jews and Gentiles are being baptized. They're coming into the faith. The church is growing. uh, And there's this real sense of community, a lot of really good things going on there, uh, which is pretty unheard of. Because culturally, there used to be this huge segregation between Jews and Gentiles. The two didn't mix. But here within the church at Antioch, we see those walls being broken down. We see genuine community happening, uh, which is something that we talked about in our youth group during this week. So if there's any of the high schoolers here, they'll know what we're talking about. Uh, But these people were doing everything together. They were living together. They were eating together. They were worshiping together. There was this true sense of unity amongst uh, the believers there within the Holy Spirit. That is until, as the passage said, these men from James came to town from Jerusalem. These men were known as Judaizers. And uh, like Christina Cleveland, they had a very specific idea of what the right kind of Christian should be. For them, the right kind of Christian was somebody who believed in Jesus, yes, but also followed the Jewish laws and customs, specifically the ones around circumcision. You know, for them, uh, they thought that you had to uh, follow the rules, do enough stuff, and then, after you've done that, after you've completed these processes, then you can be considered a Christian. Then you can be a follower of Christ. And so when they come in, they start spreading this message amongst the church in Antioch. And as they're doing this, Peter starts to distance himself a little bit from the Gentiles. He gets a little bit worried once he hears this message. He's like, oh, maybe maybe these guys have a point. Maybe, uh, Maybe we shouldn't, you know quite be so tight-knit until these Gentiles get their act together, you know, until they actually go ahead and get circumcised. Then, then we can be a true community. And so the segregation uh, between Jews and Gentiles comes back up again, uh, and to the point where even Barnabas, Paul's longtime partner in ministry, starts to do the same thing, starts distancing himself from these Gentiles until they start doing the right kind of Christian things. And so Paul gets really angry about this, I mean, that's like the first verse that we read is uh, he opposes Peter to his face. He comes into the church and he calls them out. And he does this because they should know better. You know, Paul and Barnabas, these are guys who, or Peter and Barnabas, these are guys who have been uh, instrumental in the church for a long time. I mean, Peter spent much of his adult life with Jesus, following him, learning from him. They should know better than this. And so a lot of the rest of the, the chapter is spent with Paul calling these guys out and explaining to them about what they got wrong. But before we go any further into that, I want us to look at why we do this to ourselves. Why we create these uh, rigid moral definitions of what's right and wrong. Why, do we, why are we drawn to these strict rules? I mean, we might say that we don't like strict rules and regulations and we're, you know, we're free thinkers, But even being drawn to that, that's a strict view that you have to be a free thinker. Uh, We are just drawn to these things, these moral rules and laws. And David Zoll, he he quotes in Seculosity about why he thinks that is. He says that religions of law, of morality, of right and wrong, they might succeed in the short term because they appeal to our yearning for control. This yearning for control that all of us have. But they run out of steam eventually when confronted with the realities of human conflictedness. You know, I, I once mentored this teen who he was getting ready to be baptized, and I remember him saying to me one time, man, I really hope that once I'm baptized, I won't sin anymore. And I was like, 
kind of broke my heart a little bit when he said that because I knew he was setting himself up for this really, really difficult road ahead if that's what he thought it was all about. And sure enough, a few weeks later, I, I went with him and his church. They went down to the river. And there was this beautiful service. You know, he and his, his fellow baptizees are wearing these white robes and they go out into the water and the church is singing these songs in another language that I didn't even understand. But I was like, okay, I think I get what's going on here. And they get dunked and they come up and they're freezing because it was early spring. And they come out, and it was really, really exciting. It was a huge moment for him, and it was a really beautiful scene. But then, sure enough, a few weeks later, some of the old habits and vices that he'd had in his life before start edging their way back in. And I can only imagine the kind of thoughts that would be going through his head after that started happening again. You know, I, I just told everybody that I'm going to be a Christian. <laughs> I just got baptized, but... Good Christians don't do the kinds of things that I'm doing. What does that mean? Am I even really a Christian at all? Am I even saved if I'm doing these things even though I say I'm a Christian? And so as a result, uh, I saw him actually do something about this. You know, for a lot of us, when we're, uh, when we're in doubt, it can be comforting to have this sort of checklist of good Christian deeds that we can do to sort of appease these doubts that creep into our minds. So I saw him doubling down on his Bible reading. You know, he, he erased all of the non-Christian music from off of his phone. And he, he started posting some more Christian things on his social media sites. You know, and, and there's really nothing wrong with these in themselves. I mean, obviously, there's nothing wrong with reading the Bible more. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with uh, listening to worship music. These can be good things. But the way that he was using them reminded me almost of like how, a, how an addict uses their drug of choice you know, to numb the pain that they're feeling. He was going to these things as a way to numb the doubt and the guilt and the fear that he was experiencing in his life. You know, if I read the Bible more, okay, now I don't have to worry because I, I know I'm a good Christian because good Christians read the Bible. Whew, okay, at least I can feel good for right now. And I think a lot of us sometimes tend to deal with our doubts, our fears, and our guilt in the same way. You know, it soothes the questions that we all have, that we all ask ourselves, do I really belong? <laughs> Am I really on the inside? Uh, have I done enough? Would God accept somebody who's done the things that I've done? I'm not sure. And when those questions start creeping into our minds, uh, guilt might tell us to do one thing. You know, maybe you're feeling guilty about the things that you do when nobody's looking, that nobody knows about. Well, guilt will tell you, read your Bible more. You know, good Christians certainly don't do the things that you've been doing, but good Christians do read their Bible a lot. So if you're going to be a good Christian, maybe if you read the Bible more, that will offset that thing that you did that nobody knew about. Maybe that will help balance it out. Or maybe you're afraid that you haven't done enough for the poor. You know, good Christians, the Bible says, good Christians do a lot for the poor. They're spending a lot of time with the poor. Maybe you're afraid that you haven't done enough. And so fear will tell you, you know what, go uh, give more to charity and go spend some more time volunteering at the homeless shelter. And then you can get God off your back. You know, then you don't have to be afraid that you haven't done enough. You can say, hey, I did this and this and this. I'm a good Christian. I don't have to be afraid anymore because I've done enough. Or maybe you doubt that God will accept you because you had sex before marriage. I mean, you can't undo that. I mean, doubt will tell you, well, you know what? You can't undo it. But if you repent a lot, and I mean a lot, a lot, a lot, like you really got to repent a lot and never, ever, ever do something like that again, then maybe, maybe, God will accept you. If you repent enough, but you've got to do a lot of it. 
the Judaizers came into Antioch, and they were stirring up this doubt, this fear, this guilt among the Gentile Christians. Are you sure that you're really part of God's people if you're not circumcised? I mean, the Bible says you've got to be circumcised. So uh, This is something that the right kind of Christian does. you get, you just got to get on board with it. And I can imagine the, the Gentile Christians starting to think, well, maybe I should just do it. You know, I'm kind of afraid that if I don't, what if I, I'm, you know, what if I die and I'm about to go to heaven and Jesus says, ah, you didn't get circumcised. Should have done it. Now you're out. So maybe, maybe I should just do it to make sure, you know, at least it couldn't hurt to go through with it. Well, actually it could hurt. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> but we do these sorts of things. We, we try to, to make sure that we've made the sufficient sacrifice for ourselves that we've done enough to prove that we belong on the inside, that we are the right kinds of Christian. And when we do this, we just turn Christianity into this religion of morality, of right and wrong. And if you want an example of what happens if you decide to live your life by just these rigid rules of right and wrong, what can happen to you? Uh, Look no further than the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, who by a lot of measures is this really great guy, really smart, great leader, Uh, He cares a lot about people on the margins of society. A lot of his political career was built around uh, condemning racism and sexism. And he sort of was walking what he talked. uh, When he was inaugurated, he made sure that his cabinet uh, was gender equal with men and women, and there were diverse cultures represented amongst the government when he was there uh, within his cabinet. And then something happened. He had spent his whole life living... Uh, and telling people about how uh, good Canadians should act. What's the right way to do things? Condemning racism, condemning sexism. And then this photo comes out of him in brown face at this Arabian Nights party from decades ago. But because he had built his entire reputation on condemning racism, when a photo of him in a racist costume comes out, he loses almost all credibility. People start jumping on him and calling him a hypocrite. Because he was preaching a high moral bar that he couldn't live up to. And this is what happens when we make this moral system of right and wrong. Eventually, we fail to live up to it. There was an Atlantic article uh, that talked about the situation. And the author said this, that the Trudeau scandal actually points to a larger problem. The woke will always break your heart. It's not just that nobody's perfect. And it's not just that times change, and it's not even that the instinct to punish is inherently self-defeating. If people want to sell you morality of any kind, they always have something to hide. If people want to sell you morality of any kind, they always have something to hide. So when you hear people talking about this is the right kind of way to be a Christian, when we find ourselves telling others, hey, this is the right kind of way to be a Christian, you can bet that there's something that they're not telling you about in their own life. That when we say those words, maybe we're actually covering up a thing in our life that we feel insecure about. When we do this, when we create these moral systems of right and wrong, when we turn religion into something like that, uh, we create a burden that's too heavy for us to carry. Mark Twain, he wrote about this recurring nightmare that he had where he'd be lying in bed And slowly, this massive, heavy Bible would come descending down upon him. And it would crush him and smother him with its weight. And he would wake up terrified. 
because he knew that the weight of this religion was crushing him. I think that's what happens when we take on the weight of trying to be the right kind of Christian. This is the burden of Jesus land. It crushes us. It smothers us in this weight that we can't possibly lift on our own. And this is why Paul is so emphatic about calling this out when he comes to Antioch. I mean, look at what he says at the end of verse 16. He says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You cannot justify yourself by following the right kinds of rules. There never was and there will never be any law observance basis for your relationship with God. It doesn't matter if you're following the Jewish laws of circumcision or whatever laws of Jesus' land tell you how to be the right kind of Christian. There never was and there will never be any kind of law observance basis for your relationship with God. So what do we do? We've got to do something. No, actually we don't. (laughs) The only thing that you have to do is remember. Remember the thing that Peter and Barnabas and Christina Cleveland and every citizen of Jesus' land forgot. That it's by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works so that no one can boast. It's given freely. It's not something that you have to earn, that you have to do enough in order to receive. And what is grace? I mean, I love that the question of the week this, this week was, how do you feel about grace? And I don't know who it was, but somebody responded with this, and, and I, I really liked it. Uh, they said, I didn't used to know what grace meant regarding God. You know, for me, it was always this church word. Uh, but to find out that it means undeserved, unearned favor from God to us, to me, what a wonderful thing to learn. That's what grace is. Undeserved, unearned favor from God to us. It means that even though all of us fail to live up to the moral standards that we set for ourselves, as we create this idea of what's right and what's wrong, all of us fall short, some of us more publicly than others. Even though that happens every time, and even though our failure actually deserves a penalty, Jesus already suffered every penalty that you and I and every other person in the world has incurred. It's all been paid for. That's what the cross is all about. Uh, It it was his way of taking on the punishment for each and every one of us. And because of this, you and I can enter into a relationship with God without fear of being judged, without fear of being rejected, without fear of being turned away. In fact, we can enter this relationship knowing that we will be accepted, loved, and showered with gifts because of what Jesus has done for us. That's what grace is. Grace is a kid getting uh, candy when actually he deserves to be in trouble. This is uh, you getting a promotion when actually you deserve to be fired. Grace is when the person that you're madly in love with actually knows all of your deepest, darkest secrets and still wants to marry you. That's grace. And Paul expounds on this a little bit further in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. I think this is what's at the heart of true Christianity. It's not that we live our lives trying to be like Jesus or trying to do things for Jesus. The heart of Christianity is that we are in Jesus. That we are in Jesus Christ. And that means that everything that's true of him is now true of you. 
Now just think about that for a minute. Everything that's true of Jesus is now true of you when you are in him. That means that you, your guilt, your debt, your penalties that you deserve for your failure to live up to these high moral standards, all of that is paid for because you are in him and he suffered the consequences for it. Likewise, all of the rewards that he deserves for living the perfect life, for showing us what it means to love, for being selfless, for doing every right and good thing, the reward that he deserves and earns for that is now yours as well because you are in him. Your penalty is taken away because you're in him. You receive gifts because you are in him. That's what it means. Not that we have to be like him, do things for him, but to remember that we are in him. And when we do remember this, we, we see that grace kind of comes in with this sledgehammer and just destroys our idea of what the right and wrong kind of way to live is. It just shatters it. We can't live in Jesus' land if, if righteousness is given freely. It just doesn't work that way. In Jesus' land, it's all about what you earn, what you do, doing enough, earning enough, doing the right kinds of things. But when grace is given freely, that whole system just falls apart. In fact, it even breaks down how we understand the difference between Christians and non-Christians. I mean, if you were to ask the average citizen of Jesus' land, what's the difference between you and a non-Christian? Well, they might say something like, I, just, I, I live a better life than they do. You know, I go to church on Sunday mornings while they're all sleeping in from partying and drinking the night before. Uh, they're loud. They, are, they don't care about uh, you know, doing the right kinds of things. I'm just simply a better person. You know, I'm God's kind of person. But you want to know the real difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Absolutely nothing, except the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only difference. You can't live in Jesus' land if that's the only difference. And so for us, I, I hope that we hang on to this, that we don't let go of this truth like, like Peter and so many others have done. Uh, and, and as we see in verse 21, uh, we see Paul kind of going a little bit further with this as he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Don't forget God's grace. Because when we do, it's as if we're saying to Jesus, you know what, I don't think your sacrifice was quite good enough. I think I need to do a little bit more just to make sure. You know, I, I think I need to do a little bit more just so that I can be certain that I'm covered. You know, you said your sacrifice, your death on the cross was good enough, but I just got to do this extra little thing just so that I can be certain, just to ease that doubt and that fear that I have. You know, if you're somebody that, that tends to beat yourself up when you make a mistake, as I know I tend to do, if you berate yourself, if you condemn yourself, I want to gently invite you to stop doing that. Because Christ has already been beaten, berated, condemned, rejected for you. There's no reason to add any more on top of it. What he took on himself was enough. We don't need to add anything else. And if you find yourself forgetting grace from time to time, uh, there's a few things that I want to encourage you to do to help you remember. Uh, because, let's face it, we forget things very quickly and it's very easy for us to fall back into the same 
mindset that says I need to earn my way in. I need to do enough to make sure I'm okay. And here's a few things that we can do. Uh, Actually, the church has two really, really clear signs of grace that we can sort of act out every single week when you come to church. Those two signs are baptism and communion that we have that I'm just standing right in front of right now. Uh, uh, First, baptism. I mean, for most of us, it's it's like a one-time event. Maybe you don't even remember it. Uh, It just happens once in our life, but you can remember your baptism every single day. You know, Martin Luther said uh, to remember your baptism every time you wash your face. Remember that God's grace has cleaned you. <laughs> that has taken away all the stains, all the guilt from failing to live up to those high moral standards. I have a friend who tells me that every time he takes a shower, he uses that time to pray and to remember his baptism. To think about how he's cleaned up. The soothing warm water, how it relaxes him. Uh, and all of these things, and how you, you end the shower as a fresh, clean, new person. Just like how in baptism you end up being in Christ, a fresh, clean, and new person. The second one uh, is communion. And each week uh, when we take communion, there's often this phrase that goes with it that says, take, eat, remember, and believe. Remember. Remember that uh, communion represents this feast the celebration feast uh, where Jesus is the guest of honor. And because you are in Jesus, you belong at this table. You don't have to worry about whether you've been invited or not. You are in Jesus, and it's in honor of him. And therefore, it's in honor of you. And you are welcome to participate and to receive the grace that he gives so freely. And thirdly, um, we often forget because we get caught up in our own stories so much that we, we focus in on the small picture. And so I want to encourage you to spend time in the Bible. Whether that's on your own, maybe it's with a mentor, maybe it's part of our Bible study that we do in the back room on Sundays. But the more time that we spend uh, reading through God's huge story of grace, the more we're thinking about how that grace plays a role in our life. It helps us to see the difference between Jesus land, doing things right, living right, and Jesus the one who's done everything for us. It helps us see that in Jesus' land, you have to get it right in order to be accepted. But in Jesus, you are actually made right by his acceptance. We see that in Jesus' land, you have to do enough in order to be forgiven. But we see that in Jesus, you are declared enough because of his forgiveness. We see that in Jesus' land, you have to change in order to be loved. But we see that in Jesus, we are actually changed by his love. Will you please pray with me? God, we thank you so much, first of all, for, for taking on the burden that none of us could carry. Man, a lot of us have tried, and we end up crushed because of it. We thank you for taking that on yourself. And we thank you also for sharing your gifts with us freely, even though we don't deserve it because we can never do enough to earn it, and yet you give it to us anyway. Thank you. Help us to remember that we don't need to to keep trying to earn it. Help us just to remember your grace, just that one simple message. Help that to sink into us, into our minds and into our hearts. God, that everything else can flow out of that one message that we are loved and accepted freely because of you. And that from that, 
we can share your love, your joy, your generosity with the world. Amen.